0: Hello and welcome listeners. This is the Tales and Tactics podcast. I'm your host, Troy. With me, we have the co-host, Max. Heya. We also have our producer, Jay, on the line with us as well today. Hey, hey. Thank you, Jay. We are going to be covering Tunnels and Trolls today. This is the second fantasy role-playing game And it is one that has a very interesting slice in space and time in the history of role-playing games in general. We're going to go into the origins of the game itself. We'll discuss the systems, the real crunch and meat of our episode. And then we will launch into the impact and some of what came out of this game and some of the uh, follow-up follow-up. So we'll get started with that now. And I will just throw to Max to give us our introduction on Tunnels and Trolls.
1: All right. So, as Troy mentioned, uh, we are talking about Tunnels and Trolls, which, as stated, is the second fantasy RPG, the third RPG, uh, ostensibly the third RPG ever, following after Boot Hill, which could be argued to be a secretly hidden skirmish game, but is billed as a role-playing game. Tunnels and Trolls was created by uh, Ken St. Andre in Arizona, of all places. The The story goes that he had been looking to find a copy of Dungeons and Dragons because he had read about it, and he couldn't find it in any store. And then eventually, he found a friend of his who invited him to play it, and they could not make heads or tails of the rules. so. Ken sat down and read through the entire thing, in as as we had done for that episode, and came to two conclusions. One, this is a brilliant idea, and two, I don't understand how it works, so I have to make my own game. So it's sort of like he got the um, he got the spirit of the thing, but he realized very quickly that it requires special dice. It makes reference to a completely different game, that being Chainmail. And it probably was like, I don't know what that would be like. I mean, Troy, did you ever get like an expansion pack as a kid and then realize that it was an expansion pack and not the whole game?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't you buy the expansion pack before you buy the game and then you realize you can't finish the installation?
1: Yeah. You're like, wait a minute. Like you're, you're like a kid and you're probably like eight and you're like, to be fair, we're old. So (laughs) this is back when you bought games in a store and they were in a box. And then you realize that you had bought the expansion pack and you're like, oh, what? So then you have to go out and get the game. Then you, or your parents have to buy it for you. Then you have to argue with your parents because the game now is actually cost like twice as much as the other one. <laughs> and the thing you thought you were getting away with, like, oh my God, it's so cheap. It's like, my parents are totally going to buy that. And they do. And then you realize you goofed. Anyway, so he, I imagine a not too dissimilar situation kind of came out. but. One of the wonderful things about tabletop games is that it's all just words on paper. So Ken then decided, okay, I'm going to go away and I'm going to, it wouldn't be fair to say rewrite this because he really did end up making his own game.
0: Yes, I would agree with that.
1: But he he wrote a new game inspired by that. And it carries over a lot of the same conventions. Um, it refers to the the referee as a dungeon master. Actually, I'm not even sure that I don't think OD&D does that. I think they refer to it as referee, taking from the wargaming term. Mm. But Dungeon Master is featured as a descriptor of the person running the, the world. That's
0: right. It is the person in charge of the NPCs, of the setting, of all of that. And they are labeled Dungeon Master, just like you see in many popular games today.
1: Yeah. And it shared a lot of other sort of thematic elements. And... He then took it to a convention, and I don't remember exactly—I'm There's, I'm missing an important person in this, but he gave a lot of the print-offs to someone who had a table there. It may have been the, um, the owner of Flying Buffalo who would later acquire the game, and it was criticized by that guy as being like, well, why would anyone want to play a game that doesn't have an ending? But apparently it just flew off his table because I assume people caught on that it was d and esque And then from that point on, it became this kind of alternate game, which had a couple advantages over Dungeons & Dragons. One, it was cheaper uh, because everything came in one book, which was, it would be a negative in selling it in a store for reasons that we have briefly mentioned in other episodes that being that it is just a book. Right. And another main advantage to it was that it was it was flexible, it was a bit more accessible for the same reasons that he had written it. So, at least by the standards of the time, accomplished the goal that he was aiming for, which is to make a more self-contained accessible game.
0: Well, it had D6 as its primary resolution system. And that was way easier to come across in the 70s than a set of polyhedral dice, which would have been uh, much more of a specialist item.
1: Yeah, 100%. um, You could raid a Yahtzee set, Yeah, and you'd come up with a handful of dice. I mean, you know, you could take from a whole bunch of different games. D6s were easily mass-produced and were readily available, and you didn't have to order out to, like, Taiwan or wherever the select few places until, obviously, nowadays you can find polyhedral dice anywhere. You know, thank you, Mr. Zachi. But at the time, that would have been a tall ask. And yeah, and I guess we're already talking about the system, so we can kind of get into some of the meat of it. So I don't know, Troy, if you want to give some of your initial observations as far as what makes this different from Dungeons & Dragons.
0: As we were just alluding... It is a D6 only game, so you're not going through a series of different dice. You're effectively playing the first dice pool game where you're rolling your batch of D6 to resolve your, your actions and your skills and your combats. So that's different than d straight across, and you'll see that as something that Tunnels and Trolls has kept throughout all of its later editions, is it is still a game that is a D6 based, you know, role play game going through, Um, There are the three archetypal classes that you're familiar with, but they're a little different than how they're implemented in Dungeons & Dragons. You'll see that there is a fighter, there's a magic user, and there is a rogue. And the rogue is a very interesting character in that they have access to a different leveling progression than the other two characters. So again, different than D&D at this time, that only goes to level 10 with just a guideline to proceed beyond that. Mm -hmm. In Tunnels and Trolls, you go all the way to level 17. And in there, rogues can go to level seven. At that point, you have to multi-class into either fighter or magic user from the master rogue. Entry.
1: I got the impression that it was sort of like multi-classing, but it was more like changing tracks entirely.
0: That's probably a better way to describe it because you kind of just like pick up where you are and just start on the new path and start accruing experience going forward that way. So that's probably a better way to describe it. Yeah, and it is a really interesting first appearance of the rogue. Um, Another thing that's interesting is in terms of your core skills and stats, wisdom out no wisdom uh, as the author found that he didn't know what it was for what it meant like what does this represent in our character's composition so luck came in and that's something that some of the um osr games have used in really creative and cool ways you know probably directly inspired by its appearance here in tunnels and trolls and something else about this game, and Max, I'd like to get you to give me your thoughts on this, because this is sort of one of the more divisive elements of this game, of TNT. Mm. It has a different tone. Right. Like, it has a sense of humor and a lightness to it yeah. that does and does not land. There are times where there's like a certain playfulness, I think, that I like, and there are other times that it kind of comes off as, I don't know, not my not my flavor.
1: Yeah. So Jay and I briefly spoke to our local games guru who works at the comic and game store in our local area. And this is a guy who remembers first edition in great detail, including original Dungeons and Dragons. So he's a venerable old nerd in in the most flattering way I can mean that. And he said that he thought the game was fun, but he had one player who, on account of the tone, for the most part refuse to play the game.
0: Interesting.
1: So I have a first-hand account of what you're talking
0: about. Yeah, and I like, like, take that, you fiend, you know what I mean? Like, that's fun. That's yeah. the name of a spell. And that type of kind of irreverence is sort of, like, charming in a way, but it also, I think, can keep you out of the action at the table, because you're constantly, like, breaking... I mean... I'm someone who doesn't love the term immersion when it comes to gaming, you know what I mean? Because, like, what are, you, yeah. what are we even... You're sitting in... You're in a living room, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I,
1: I have a, a best-case scenario for what that means, and I have a worst-case scenario, and I know what you're talking about, <laughs> but go ahead. Do you think that uh, Ken St. Andrew kind of... Oh, kinda, or sorry. Uh, Ken St. Andre wanted to kind of keep it a tongue-in-cheek style? I think that... Well... <laughs> Very little tone is carried across in D&D. So I feel that th- that's a personal
0: choice on his part. Mm, okay.
1: I-, I think that's his own interpretation of those rules. Or or what do I say, the uh, the theme? Right. Yeah.
0: It's something that I was sort of almost surprised by when I read it the- through the first time. I was like, oh, this is sort of weird in a way. It, it kind of has like, yeah, like you say, um, OD&D almost... Tries to be without editorializing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Like, like just hear them's the facts.
1: Yeah. I have a new from reading this, and we will get into how it's written, which was a mixed bag for both of us. Yes. Um. I have a new appreciation for Guy writing and its clarity. Not that uh Saint Andre's Andre's stuff, like clearly he has really good ideas. And I I like his interpretation of those ideas, but his actual description of it is a little murky at times.
0: Yeah, I think you put it, it's simpler, but not as clear as D&D.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So it's a little bit harder to parse. Um, I still think it does a better job of being a game that you could learn by yourself if you don't need like a a friend or relation that already knows how to play to show you the game. I almost feel like this game is easier to take on than classic D&D in that regard. But I do agree, uh, St. Andre's writing is a little bit of a mixed bag. It's a little, it's not weird or or off-putting by really at all, but it is just a little bit strange. It's hard to follow some of the stream of consciousness that happens. And I don't know. I fi- I find like I was craving a certain refinement that maybe comes in later editions of this rules.
1: Yeah, again, I think it's important to note that we are uh we were reading the very first edition scan with the unicorn cover. Uh and just to describe this book if no one's read it, but you can pick it up on drive through. It's pretty cheap. A PDF, I should say. Is that it is typewriter set very narrow spacing at least compared to other books and is single column. So it's a bit of a wall of text. It is. I imagine reading it in a hand bound volume, which is probably like staple bound would be um, maybe a little easier, but it's, especially from us coming at uh, coming from reading um, Warhammer fantasy battles, Yes, which is, which is so like and it's it's clunky in its layout, but in a way where it leaves lots of white space and it's very breezy and it's it has that refinement of clarity. Those authors know how to write rules, which is actually I'm starting to understand more and more to be a unique skill in itself, just as say writing narrative or, or stories is a unique skill. Writing rules in a way where people understand it is interesting. And this is a really good example of not so much not how to do it, but how having your ideas clear in your head before you start describing it is very important. Because while it is broken into sections, it does kind of go through them in a particularly weird order where I felt like, oh yeah, okay, he was mentioning this, but then sometimes he'll mention something that hasn't been brought up yet.
0: That is one of my personal, I guess, pet peeves, we'll call it. But when a rule gets mentioned out of sequence in a rule book for when it is fully explained, like we're calling rules in the text before we're referencing them with a full explanation, Mm -hmm. and then you're just sort of like what does that mean what in the in the movement phase we're talking about line of sight yeah but we haven't got to the shooting phase to discuss that for example do you know what i mean yeah like that kind of that that can really take me out of a read and get me flipping pages and figuring out like okay wait flip back 20 pages what did that mean
1: yeah for sure oh just offhandedly i looked up um you mentioned that the the rogue, so the rogue as a rogue is um, is unique to Tunnels and trolls, but the thief class would have been mentioned about a year before this, so that had already entered in with the Greyhawk supplement.
0: Oh, uh,
1: actually, a, around the same time in an official printing, though it was originally prefaced in a in a um, in game players newsletter. But clearly the idea of that, and it is interesting because I tend to think of the dynamics of a part. I mean, there's what some people I know refer to as a square party, which is fighter, thief, cleric, wizard. Yes. But a more reduced version of that, I tend to think of it as a fighter, thief, and magic user, which alternatively could be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, St. Andre wasn't super big on the... Um, the implicit religious aspects of the game, which is why it has no cleric and it has no alignment system. Uh, He thought those things were weird and he just left them out. Let's see. Uh, Yeah, so wisdom's out. Luck, though, that's in. And that is an interesting thing that I think makes a... A first appearance yeah
0: i do like that a lot um and just also i kind of glossed over it but max do you mind going into more of how the d6 resolution system actually works in practice
1: yeah so that was one of those areas where i had a bit of an interesting time trying to figure out it would seem that the way that it's so there's there's a large emphasis in the game about even though and this will i'll say this this way of doing things will resolve into another realization toward that we'll bring up later but there's a big emphasis on the dungeon master and the caller which is a designated player who essentially acts as the leader of the party yes and what is i guess implied is that the party comes to a resolution about a thing and the caller is the guy that says okay we're doing this um weirdly enough it doesn't say it that way and One could be led to believe that there's like one guy at the table that's just making up decisions for everybody, but I understand the spirit, I I think I understand the spirit of what he's saying. Then, the way that, it's worded a little bit oddly, but essentially, the difference in constitution between the party of heroes and the party of enemies, or single enemy, is the threat of attack. So there's a essentially it creates a variable which is the the number that is being rolled like onto. So you're you're rolling and you're adding this difference. The more odd thing happens when the attack is made because then the character's roll saving throws against damage rather than rolling to hit. I can see by that decision alone that would create a very specific dividing point between people who would be familiar with D&D and people who would play this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, your super geeks are going to play everything. Yeah, we are. You know. And I certainly I certainly would give this a try, but there are some people who have pet systems because it's what they're familiar with. We can call them the conservative player or GM. And that would be that one there might be a bridge too far <laughs> for some people. But yes, there's there's a particular dice resolution system which is effectively based on hit dice Uh, constitution is so the way that stats are developed is same idea 3d6 in order constitution is more of the deciding factor in a combat strength seems to be more based around what you can carry or rather how much you can carry and has some sense of what weapons and in some cases, what spells you can use.
0: And armor is a direct constitution modifier as well, just showing again how important the constitution is.
1: Yeah. The system is more based around mitigating damage than necessarily making hits. So in D&D, armor adds to your AC, which is essentially your ability to evade being hit. Whereas here, it's a deduction of damage. You'll see this in other systems. D&D, until like more modern like OSR games, the idea of armor being a deflective quality rather than an absorbing quality kind of unique to D and D for quite a while. Right. I mean, there are other examples of it, but I'm thinking of like, uh, room quest uses absorbing damage armor. We'll do the room quest episode. I look forward to it. Rules light. It is not <laughs> fun. It is.
0: Yeah, I know. It's, it's some good stuff. I like me some percentiles.
1: It's a, uh it's a different beast but even in that case and that game would have been coming out so i'm trying to i'll try and put some contemporary gaming context here so 1975 would have released boot hill we would have released the thief um empire of the petal throne would have been a pretty hot ticket around that time and so the, this is really the burgeoning inceptional point of role playing and tunnels and trolls is an interesting thing which i do think had a lot of influence and as i said we'll get into some of those but it's it's definitely a different logic uh in how you determine combats and so there's this vague sense of it's almost i mean i don't think it's not explicitly said but there's almost a mass combat kind of feel about it
0: yeah i got that too
1: later editions i'm not sure may may have changed that and one of the advents of this later would be the advent of solo games, which is a special little quality of Tunnels and Trolls.
0: And also, the magic system is quite a bit different than D&D as well, as your classic D&D is like a dying Earth, Vancean magic system, whereas this is a magic point system And correct me if I'm wrong, it's actually based on your strength characteristic?
1: Yeah, there's a a strength value associated with each spell. And essentially, yeah, it's it's sort of like a point expenditure system, uh, where you have spell points that are influenced by your character's strength. And from that, you're able to essentially cast a lot of the same types of spells that Dungeons & Dragons have.
0: Albeit with sillier names.
1: Yeah, with a, a more it's it's interesting that the magic gets the the funny touch most most especially like there's definitely the way that it's written but I think that's where the quirkiness really starts to show at least within the game the well-known take that you fiend damage spell. <laughs> yes. Which apparently was the the absolute no-go for my uh my friend's player. Oh,
0: that was the the red line.
1: That that was the, he wasn't having that. <laughs> and I get it. I still think this this does look like it would be fun to play, but I get it. It's it's definitely a different take. So yeah, um I find it interesting though that strength and is is tied to magic using. I want to assume that what he would what Saint Andre was trying to achieve with that, aside from the sort of thematic idea that you're 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 tapping into your physical reserves yes. in order to cast spells, is to make sure that every class made use of all of the uh characteristics there seems to be some like i don't think it's directly said but there seems to be some suggestion of that
0: and i love a buff wizard (laughs) i think that's thematically fun and i can picture some classic you know very like 70s style art of a guy ripped with his staff summoning an orb you know i can see these images yeah and it's fun that um that it yeah does actually engage other stats that you don't commonly associate with that type of class, you know what I mean? Like I think that's actually that's novel. Yeah,
1: a hundred percent. Some other qualities that are massive positives is that making characters is way faster. Yes, mostly due to some of the simplification, um, and also that the game is more, I guess, in its own way skill based.
0: Well, that's how the progression works, right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Your your progression in levels of a particular class suggests your ability to perform certain things, which I think is a is a nice, simple way to handle that idea. I, I, I don't know that I'd call it skill-based in the sense that what we understand skill-based to mean now, but maybe more like action-based or... Mm. Like it, it has to do with oh, I want to do you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna force that door down, and then you're like okay, well you're a fighter, so you have a pretty good shot at that, or I'm gonna pick that lock, and so you're the rogue, and you you're, you have a better shot of that, or in the in the case of the wizard, they have a not too subtle similar spell to knock from from Dungeons and Dragons called knock knock,
0: yes, <laughs>
1: which effectively does the same sort of thing, and. That's the game. I mean, I guess an important thing to kind of add to this, and I have a, a, a maybe a bit of a fun segue to that. The monsters are very generic. Like it has essentially the monster page is what monsters are, and then a long list of what a monster could be, with uh, all sorts of mythical and fantastical names associated in a in a large paragraph, and then it has the strength of the monster, which is essentially a calculation of in DD you would call hit dice modified by what level of the dungeon.
0: Yeah. Monsters aren't so much like a fixed stat line. It's sort of hit dice times dungeon depth level. And that's what a monster is. Yeah. So it's not even as detailed as, you know, this is what an orc is, and this is what a skellington is. You know, it's not even quite like that. It's a little bit more simplified so that you, as the dungeon master, would end the players, but you you would fill that in with your storytelling.
1: Yeah, and based on how people thought about role playing games, well, again, it was still in these sort of pocket cultures. Yes, like as you had mentioned, having those particular dice for playing D anD D were more a concern if you didn't have chainmail, but then likely the only people who the majority more likely to have played d with Chainmail rules probably lived in the Great Lakes area. Yeah. Whereas, as I've I've heard that, say, the, the California scene, they were just using the alternate rules that came in d d Or they were just making it up. Um, but there was a lot of DIY. And so a monster that's essentially just a hit-die value, there is some suggestion that some monsters could have stats like a hero. But ostensibly, they're basically just a, a value of points. And uh, you flavor that up as you wish. But there are no hard and fast rules in this particular version that differentiate differentiates, as you say, a animated skeleton from an orc.
0: It's very do-it-yourself in a lot of ways in this rule set. And I think that is charming. Yeah. I think that is... I mean, for its time, it's almost the standard to a certain effect but this does implement that mentality really well and i think that tunnels and trolls though different from dnd sort of managed to appeal to like a the same gamer who wanted a, a slightly different take on it um it's really interesting like tunnels and trolls actually was exported to europe and japan in some countries before D was yeah so it's actually a much bigger game in france than some of the other uh, co- other contemporary role-playing titles of its era
1: yeah absolutely and like um it was sort of the premier introduction in japan to the concept of role-playing in a lot of ways not in the well it's hard to say so there were some interesting observations that we had Made and briefly discussed, I think Jay and I had kind of when I was describing it, we sort of figured, wait, this is a lot of what a roguelike would be is very much this game, but in paper form. yes, I don't know how to explain that exactly. Maybe it's because it has this sort of hack style mentality, and I mean hack in in the sort of hacker and hack and slash sort of combinational term. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things that you'll find in a game like rogue or NetHack, are almost more obviously in this. And I thought that was amusing. I was like, I wonder how much influence this has actually had on computer RPGs. Yeah. Especially early ones. I
0: totally know what you mean, because it did give me a NetHack vibe. That's something that I did. I don't know if that was me bringing that to this game, but I kind of felt that too.
1: More so than um, D&D, because D&D is very rooted in its wargaming sort of past
0: yeah D had like one of the um criticisms or comments that i had read about D of the time that was actually sort of a, a praise to tunnels and trolls was D was still a glorified miniatures game yeah and tunnels and trolls put the storytelling first it's almost like a theater of mind game um in in even the way that you add up your your dice resolution mechanics you know what i mean
1: it's sort of a a, a- the, the role is a kind of miasma that coalesces into something that happened. Yeah. Uh, as, a, as opposed to this lead figurine touches this one, and then some dice are rolled, and then a thing happens. Yeah. And D&D definitely feels more like that. But no, I definitely picked up on this sort of, like, net hack roguelike element. Okay, so the, f- the impact of this, obviously, uh, Flying Buffalo games um picks up this and flying buffalo games up to this point is predominantly known for their play-by-mail um i don't know what you'd call them strategy games
0: yeah yeah
1: i'd say generally speaking uh flying buffalo as a company and play-by-mail games are fascinating and deserve their own episode entirely which is definitely something that we can get into but one of the first features that they have, and this is another sort of unique point about Tunnels and Trolls, is that they included it to their play-by-mail uh, listing. So you could, you could play this. This sounds like a strange concept. I mean, if you're used to play-by-post or play-by-text, then it's probably not that weird. But if you can imagine the time spaces that you would write out what your character was doing after giving it dis- just being mailed, literally snail mailed a description of what the situation was you'd write a response mail that to the company and then it would be resolved and all of those things would be sent back to you so flying buffalo already had the infrastructure for this so they just included tunnels and trolls to that i very much wonder how that would play because i can see playing um a lot of the games they had were sort of like a light version of say civilization where you might have like A starship or maybe a fleet of ships, maybe a star empire. Uh, They had a sci-fi game. I can't remember what it was called, but it was um, it was a popular game that they had. And I think they had a few other ones that were either modern, but I don't think they had a fantasy one. So the Tunnels and Trolls filled their fantasy niche. Yeah, right. And I just wonder what, like, because it's based on Dungeons and Dragons, what is it like to play a character where you're like, okay, we're in this room. I'm going to write this out and send it off. And then maybe in a few weeks, I'll find out what happened.
0: I don't know how you would do. I mean, in Tunnels and Trolls, I know how you would handle a combat encounter because it is rounded down to a decisive dice roll. Yeah. So you could just narrate out your action, contributing to that moment of decision that the GM would then, or the the Dungeon Master, pardon me, would then resolve on their side, you know, of the PBM. Sure. But yeah, but like, I couldn't see resolving fights in their traditional tactical way of like like a chess match like i move three spaces left
1: yeah i mean i'm wondering so they're doing the resolution for effectively flying buffalo is acting as gm in this case so one way i can imagine it is your party is all of the people like you've got a group of people at your house or you like talk to your friends in casual environments and you're like so what is your guy doing like you're playing the thief and then the guy who sends the letter in is effectively the caller or the, the leader character
0: oh that makes the most sense so the caller is the one in correspondence and that that makes it much more simple for flying buffalo to resolve that i like that
1: yeah uh, as opposed to everybody send i mean i think that could still work and apparently flying buffalo had a pretty ro- well i don't know exactly at this point but they had a pretty robust architecture for sorting out moves in a game. And as you mentioned, the complexity of the rules allows for that to not be a huge headache.
0: Yeah. I think that's something that also plays into the fact that it was, you know, the start of solo role-playing. Yes, um, exactly. That allowed you to do that. And it had a major influence on the solo adventure games that would come after
1: it. Um, so yeah, we can get into that. So it's possible that people were playing solo games before this but considering as we mentioned how D is written i consider that to be fairly unlikely as it is a very like miniatures game and so like wow well, i mean not that you can't play a miniatures game by yourself we know several at least modern examples of how that works but the published advent of solo gaming is very much accredited to tunnels and trolls so there was entire modules written out that. Were effectively like a solo dungeon crawl, and so much so that it became a pretty big influence on a later development or a, a later product, which was created by some of the uh, the brains behind Games Workshop, which was Fighting Fantasy, which is for those that don't know, essentially a choose your own adventure book where you roll dice and you have a character sheet, and that's that was a that very much popularized um, solo gaming at a particular era but it starts with fly, uh, flying buffalo's solo products and it's an interesting idea because i do think it kind of comes from that play by mail thought process it does because at, as we mentioned like at least one version of this and we don't i'm not sure this is exactly how it worked but yeah you you'd have your friends IRL and then you would make a decision and then one guy would write the letter And then it's not a far leap from that to just being the one guy and you've got a party of four characters and you just write the letter. Yeah. And then, well, why do I need to send this away when I could just do it all myself?
0: I mean, that's the ultimate appeal of solo gaming is I can just do it all myself and being able to uh, hit that and hit it so early in the history of role-playing is really very fascinating. and. Yeah, like Fighting Fantasy, like you said, by Ian Livingston is like wouldn't exist without the modules that Tunnels and Trolls first had.
1: Yeah, again, there's a lot of interesting firsts. As you mentioned, it's near to a dice pool game. I don't know it's exactly doing that, but I do agree that there's a there's an element of adding certain values of D6 dice together and the, the more generally, the better.
0: Yeah, that's kind of like a modern shorthand to describe it, but you're right. It's a little different than, say, like a Shadowrun D6 pool, but it still gives you like an idea of of, of what you're looking at.
1: Yeah. So you have that, and then you have the solo aspect, and then again, that leads into a whole other branch of role playing. And then, and this is the curious little sort of offset, one of the internal spin-off products of Tunnels and Trolls and by spinoff, I mean it uses the same rules. And I guess you could use in tandem is a game called Monsters, Monsters. Okay. This is Tunnels and Trolls where you play the monsters.
0: That's so cool.
1: And so this is sort of an advent to future games. I mean, again, I don't know exactly how much influ- influence it would have, but at least it seeds the concept for things like Vampire and Werewolf by White Wolf. And so it, I guess it sort of laces the idea of like, a kind of horror game. I again, I think the more premier or the the more sort of like starting point for horror gaming is either Call of Cthulhu or Chill. Yes. But there's a there's a there's a little kernel of that in Monsters Monsters. That's interesting. One other thing that sort of occurred to me is that Monsters Monsters could because it uses effectively the same rule set. Again, I think it would be the second edition. So the edition following this one, because this is very much, it's it's kind of its own thing. I, From what I understand, the second edition of Tunnels and Trolls is much it's a bit more refined. It has a lot more specifics. Um, but Monsters, Monsters, I get the sense that that's how they made the monsters more complicated mm. as well. So that the, the GM has more bits to work with, and they effectively can treat some of the monsters or all of the monsters like characters that they can use but it's so obviously because the rule system is so light i don't know if that was the initial idea and i don't know that um it may have had that but then it was very easy to say well why can't the players just play the monsters so there's there's another unique offering from this line of of games yeah so any any final thoughts um there's it's quirky it's weird it's quirky
0: it's weird it it's tone can get back and forth at times but it does have some really neat ideas like the way that you dig a dungeon layout as the dungeon master um the presence of those supermarkets at the entrance to a dungeon for players to arm equip and stock up before they go down and there really isn't like a narrative justification for this for this type of sales front <laughs> at the entrance of a dungeon yeah. but it's there and it's ready for you so there's these like weird interesting concessions the game makes to be more playable in a certain way and that is not a bad thing so it's it's cool um in terms of my experience with it i haven't really seen that it like sometimes you read a a game and you just know you have to play it i didn't quite walk away with that feeling from tunnels and trolls but what i did like was what I know that it's set up for future games. So I can kind of see a lineage coming out of this for other games that I am interested in.
1: Yeah. I mean to my own my own sense of that, I got a bit more of, hey, this looks like fun than I would have got from original Dungeons and Dragons, which was a bit more academic. Yeah. Um I, I agree. It wasn't like, oh I've got to play this right now. But there was a bit more of, oh this is this feels approachable. Yeah. I, I sensed a different a sort of accessibility that I didn't get from od d Yeah, uh, and apparently it's—I mean, I—I I have repeatedly through this episode mentioned how some people were not were very nonplussed by the idea of playing this. But I will say that the people who do like it, there is even at the time there was a effectively a cult following, and they were known for being friendly, collaborative. And much more, I guess, because of the nature and the rules of the game, much more sort of loose and relaxed than, say, the the sort of hard-headed grognard that might be playing D&D.
0: Agreed. Less grognardisms.
1: Yeah. It's not coming from that that mindset. Um, you know, I, I like to bitch and moan, too, about things. But ultimately, you got to take a step back and basically be like, look, it's a game. If you don't like it, either change it or don't play <laughs> yeah. it. Suit it to your needs or find something else.
0: The writer is oftentimes not in the room with you watching you play. So you can do what you want. <laughs>
1: Believe it or not. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a lot of things. I One of the things I can see about this is that I think people who may have played both games may have traded some ideas between them. Not necessarily like the system side of it. But there are a fair number of D6-styled roles in D&D. And so mapping some of these mechanics onto D&D wouldn't be that hard. The other way around, probably not. But I could see people hacking this game into uh, od and and possibly first edition. But you'd have to see how further iterations of tun- uh, tunnels and trolls would work. I don't know how much they diverge. I think that's something i'll have to look into
0: well thank you so much for joining us this week for our episode on tunnels and trolls this has been the tales and tactics podcast with troy max and jay tune in next time where we're going to go over a mystery topic that even we do not know yet so thanks again for listening and have an excellent rest of your day